0: I'm Aaron Lore and this is the Endocrine News podcast. Today we're talking about obesity. Maybe you've heard about metabolically healthy and unhealthy obesity and you're wondering what's the difference between the two and what mechanisms might be responsible for metabolically healthy obesity? Well, if that is you, you've come to the right place. Today, we're talking about a study presented at Endo 2023 entitled Cellular Insights into Metabolically Healthy and Unhealthy Obesity. Joining me today is one of the authors of that study, Dr. Max Peterson. Dr. Peterson is instructor of endocrinology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Thank you for being here today.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Okay,
0: so for those of us who might not be aware, what is metabolically healthy obesity and how is it different from metabolically unhealthy obesity?
1: Sure, so obesity is a condition of expanded adipose tissue, people with more fat. But some people with obesity can be metabolically healthy. They don't have pre-diabetes. They don't have type two diabetes. They don't have high blood cholesterol or other lipids. They don't have liver fat. Um, And other people with obesity are metabolically unhealthy. They have pre-diabetes and they have liver fat um, that is increased and And we're interested in understanding why that is, that some people can gain 20 pounds and remain very metabolically healthy and other people gain 20 pounds and all of a sudden have full-blown prediabetes and fatty liver disease.
0: So it sounds like there's still a little bit to learn. What do we not know about metabolically healthy obesity and what did you hope to learn in the study that you're presenting here at Endo?
1: Yeah, there's so much that we don't know Mm -hmm. about metabolically healthy obesity still, in part because nobody can quite agree on how to define it. Throughout the literature, there are many different definitions of metabolically healthy obesity and it sort of depends on whether you're doing a large epidemiological study or a smaller mechanistic study that can affect the definitions you use. We also don't know the natural history of metabolically healthy obesity, whether someone who has metabolically healthy obesity at one point in time will remain that way for the next 30 years, or whether at some point they're likely to transition to metabolically unhealthy obesity. These are all open questions that further research is needed on. For this study, mm-hmm. we sought to really define two pretty rigorously characterized groups of people with obesity. One. At far end of the spectrum metabolically healthy the other at the other far end of the spectrum metabolically unhealthy and then measure everything we could think of that might have to do with the metabolic response to obesity and see what really discriminated or distinguished people with healthy from unhealthy obesity
0: That sounds great let's dig into it. why don't you tell us about your study
1: yeah so we studied 55 adults we had three groups we had a group who was metabolically healthy and lean or normal weight we had a group that had metabolically healthy obesity, and we had a group with metabolically unhealthy obesity. To be considered metabolically healthy, you had to have no evidence of prediabetes by fasting glucose, oral glucose tolerance testing, or hemoglobin A1C, and you had to have normal liver fat content by MRI. Conversely, to be in the metabolically unhealthy group, you had to have prediabetes by at least one criterion, and you had to have a hepatic steatosis, elevated liver fat content by MRI. And so we constructed uh, groups of people. The two groups with obesity, healthy and unhealthy, were well-matched for age, for sex, for body mass index, for percent body fat. And then we measured a whole host of cardiometabolic outcomes. We admitted folks to our clinical research unit and did intensive testing of glucose metabolism, including a hyperinsulinemic-euglycemic clamp procedure to assess insulin sensitivity, 24-hour profiling of the metabolic response to meal ingestion, biopsies of subcutaneous abdominal adipose tissue and skeletal muscles to measure uh, different uh, bioactive lipids in the skeletal muscle and and RNA sequencing, see what genes were up and down regulated in those tissues, uh, measurements of oxidative stress and plasma lipids and some cardiac testing as well, uh, echocardiography and vascular function testing and exercise treadmill testing for VO 2 max testing. So uh, we really uh, constructed a pretty deep cardiometabolic profile of these 55 adults. um, And then we applied various analytical techniques to try to understand what was most powerful in discriminating healthy from unhealthy obesity.
0: One of the things you mentioned in your study is uh, ceramide content. Can you tell us a little bit more about ceramides and how, in this case, seemed that they were accumulating in scalable muscle?
1: Sure. Ceramides are well understood to be a lipotoxic lipid species. They are a signaling lipid, meaning they interact with various intracellular signaling pathways, often in a harmful way. They are a low abundance lipid. There are not many ceramides inside the cell compared to, you know, many of the other lipids that forms our structural lipids inside Mm -hmm. the cell, but they can be very potent and metabolically harmful. And, in our study we saw that skeletal muscle ceramide content really correlated strongly with insulin sensitivity across the full cohort and unexpectedly to us we found that skeletal muscle ceramide content in the mitochondria was a particularly powerful discriminant of healthy versus unhealthy obesity most people with metabolically healthy obesity had very low mitochondrial ceramide content in the muscle and most people with metabolically unhealthy obesity have very high mitochondrial ce
0: content so now we 're talking about the findings from your study and that might be part of it you know what what else did you find and I always ask this because I'm always intrigued did anything in your findings surprise you
1: yeah we found that probably the biggest set of predictors of metabolically healthy versus unhealthy obesity in addition to the ceramides were various markers of insulin action and insulin levels in the blood. So the single best discriminant of healthy versus unhealthy obesity of the more than 120 cardiometabolic outcomes we measured was actually the fasting C-peptide concentration Hmm. which in endocrinology we typically measure more in the context of people with diabetes particularly type 1 diabetes assessing for example how much beta cell reserve might be present it's not something we think about in the context of obesity without diabetes which is the the population of this study but what it likely represents is a less noisy surrogate of the fasting insulin concentration the fasting C-peptide data were relatively tight, and so there was a significant, um, a highly significant difference between the metabolically healthy obesity who tended to have lower fasting C-peptide concentrations consistent with their insulin sensitivity, and the metabolically unhealthy obese group who tended to have higher fasting C-peptide concentrations. We also saw that, for example, rates of de novo lipogenesis in the liver really powerfully separated the metabolically healthy from unhealthy obese groups, mm. This was less of a surprise because we, we knew that the unhealthy obese groups had high liver fat and de novo lipogenesis in the liver is highly correlated with liver fat. I would say that the mitochondrial ceramide content being a powerful discriminant was the most surprising finding of the study. What other results came
0: out of this comprehensive analysis?
1: One of the things we measured was the, the transcriptional profile in adipose tissue. So we know that adipose tissue is a really dynamic organ that changes in obesity. It's also a really complex organ with a lot of different cell types in it. And we wanted to understand what pathways were were upregulated in people with unhealthy obesity, what pathways were upregulated in people with healthy obesity compared to one another. And the pathways that were upregulated in people with unhealthy obesity were really enriched for inflammation and immune cell infiltration as well as extracellular matrix remodeling, which is consistent with a lot of work that's been done linking those processes to an, the metabolic response to obesity. Conversely, in terms of the, the transcripts and genes that were upregulated in people with healthy obesity, we saw a strong signal for lipogenesis. So we saw that the genes that control fatty acid storage in deposition and adipose tissue were really upregulated in the people with metabolically healthy obesity, suggesting that an increased ability to store fat in the adipose tissue where it belongs mm-hmm. is a feature of metabolically healthy
0: obesity. So we said at the beginning of the podcast that there's still a lot that we don't know, and now we're talking about there's some surprising findings here, some things that maybe we had our eyebrows raised to find out about. So it makes me think, what's next? When you think about how your findings might impact future research, what do you think?
1: I think that there is a lot of work that can be done building off of these findings. This is a cross-sectional study in people. We can't infer anything about causality mm-hmm. uh, because we don't know what these levels of any of our cardiometabolic outcomes were like five years ago in these subjects. We don't know what they'll be like in five years. We don't know how they would respond to an intervention. But they can generate hypotheses for us. and so. One hypothesis that comes up is perhaps mitochondrial ceramide content in the skeletal muscle is important for the metabolic response to obesity. And that can be uh, addressed mechanistically in any number of ways from cell culture to preclinical models to serially assessing mitochondrial ceramide content in people before and after Mm -hmm. interventions that improve or worsen insulin sensitivity. That's a, a potential future direction. There are also ongoing studies in our group seeking to really define the natural history of metabolically healthy obesity, follow people longitudinally over time, and understand what happens to their insulin sensitivity, what happens to these other factors over time in persons with metabolically healthy obesity.
0: So plenty still to learn. Well, we're just about out of time, and so I wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Peterson, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about obesity, you may be interested in a recent study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism entitled Parent-Offspring Associations in Body Composition, Findings from the Southampton Women's Survey Prospective Cohort Study. We'll link to it in today's episode description. Until next time, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.